Good morning, beloved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for our time with him. Lord, we're so grateful to be able to come to church, that your church is founded on you and your word and the truths that are in it. Lord, that it's not founded on a man or any one person, but your son alone, and that we can stand in that truth and continue on. We thank you for who you are, for your holiness, for the grace and mercy that you show us on a daily basis and that you sustain us in all things. Pray that you bless our time today. Pray that the word goes forth and that the Holy Spirit does a work in your people of sanctification and saving lost souls. In your name, amen. So if any of you knew our brother in the slightest, he would not want today at all to be about him, would he? <clears throat> he would want the word to be preached. He would want the Lord to be glorified, not him, right? So by his grace, that's what we will do this morning. We will continue to do that, to honor our Lord. We're called to <clears throat> carry on the banner of faith, to carry the banner of our Lord to the next generation as people pass away. So we do that solely by his word and trusting in the Lord. So if you could stand with me for today's reading, Let's turn to Psalm 37. And the content of our text and sermon today is starting in verse 21 to the end of our psalm. And <clears throat> And I'll begin. Verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For the blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All the day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked man, a wicked violent man, spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright. For the man of peace will have posterity, but transgressors will altogether be destroyed." 
The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Now it seems fitting today to briefly go back to the beginning of our psalm to keep in context we've been studying for the past three weeks. And it seems more apparent today that we look at this. In verse three, we read, trust in the Lord and do good. We have an active obedience to our Lord in trusting in him and his way, his providence and his sovereignty. And in it, we're called to do good throughout all things. We dwell in this land and we cultivate faithfulness amongst one another in those times. We trust in him and do not lose heart. We delight ourselves in the Lord. We delight in his way and not our own. We delight in what he has for our lives and not what we make of it. He gives us the desires of our heart, which is joy. It's joy, happiness, patience, to be able to wait and to look to Christ and then commit. We commit our way to our God. We roll the burden of a life to our God because he is a God of strength. We are weak, but he is strong and we praise him in our weakness. Amen? And we trust also in him and he will do it, not us, but he will do it. He will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our judgment as the noonday. And we'll talk about this more today, but this is a judgment of innocence to the righteous. He will show forth his name in us and his son and exalt himself. So we turn today to our text. Last week, we, t- we saw the fate of the wicked and what happens to those who are outside of Christ. And we continue on in verse 21. It says, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Here in this verse, we see contentment again. The wicked never have enough. They are always in want. However great the abundance of the ungodly is, they will never be fulfilled. It's their curse. However, the Lord blessed the righteous. He gives them satisfaction, true satisfaction in this life. Gives them satisfaction in little. They find what God has given them as very sufficient, not only for their normal needs, but also to help others in their time in need. It's the same idea as we read in verse 16 last week. It is a mindset and a proper perspective. The wicked have much and waste much as well. The righteous have little, are good stewards of what they have, and they find that they have more than enough. In Acts 20, 35, we read, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Our focus, remember, should be to serve others, not ourselves. Remember from a couple weeks ago, we are designed to do that. We are designed to serve others. 
Do not do things that you are not designed to do. When we serve ourselves like the wicked, it never leads to being satisfied. If we serve others, we find fulfillment. Look at Christ's example in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, on the, on the screen. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Christ was not selfish. He left perfect communion with God and the Spirit and became poor for our sake so that we might have salvation in him. Those blessed by him will inherit the land in verse 22, which means salvation if we remember from last week. We are not cut off like the wicked and are going to be no more, but blessed. Christ has mercy on us, therefore we should have mercy on others as well. The steps of a man are established, or we can say the steps of a man are upright and steadfast. This is from the Lord. He gives you sure footing. The course of a, of a good man's life is ordained by God. His steps, or what happens to him, does not happen by chance. And in the Lord's loving kindness, he sustains us in that way. We read in Psalm 40, verse 2, He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And remember what we read in Psalm 62 a couple weeks ago, who the rock is. It says, he only is my rock and my salvation. So the Lord brings us from death to life and gives us salvation. Then he establishes our way in him by giving a sure footing in who he is and who we are in him. Then we delight in the way he gives us by trusting in him. It's beautiful, isn't it? He sustains us. So we can say the steps of a man are established by the Lord, but what, what about the stops? What about when the Lord says, wait? Do we still delight when the Lord stops us to teach us something? And there doesn't seem to be any forward progress in our walk or in our lives. And to be honest, we can be there a while sometimes because we don't learn our lesson. And we need to delight in these times as well. We need to see these times as a grace from God because they are also by design. In verse 24, we read, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Notice it says when he falls, not if. The, the righteous are not exempt from misfortune or affliction or hardships or trials or tragedy. We will be brought to our knees, but we will never, it will never be our final end. Think of Job who lost everything. Think of Joseph who was sold into slavery and thrown in prison. Think of Jonah who was in the belly of a fish for three days. All seem lost. But the Lord ended up blessing each one of those men. Because in verse 24, we read, because the Lord is the one who holds their hand. Even in our weakness, the Lord sustains us. Even if we fall in death, Listen to this quote by Spurgeon on the screen. No saint shall fail finally or fatally. Sorrow may bring us to the earth and death may bring us to the grave, but lower we cannot sink. And out of the lowest of all, we shall rise to the highest of all. 
Praise the Lord. The Lord is the one who holds our hand and brings us to him. He draws us to himself even in death. Listen to John 6, starting in verse 39. It says, This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So though we will fall and fail in life, our Lord has grace and mercy on us. And he picks us back up. And then when we fall in death, he has promised to not let us remain there, but to be with him in glory. Then we move on to verse 25. It says, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lands, and he and his descendants are a blessing. David states that throughout his life, he has never seen the Lord forsake his people. And that is true without exception. We are not forsaken. But in begging for food, this is not meant to be in an absolute sense. Because we see Paul in Philippians 4, starting in verse 11, says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in uh, prosperity. In, in, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. And where we can look to the, to the prodigal son in Luke 15. What was he reduced to eat after he lost everything? The pods of pigs that were supposed to be fed to pigs. So we see the Lord's people go through hard times and times of need. But the Lord does not keep them in that state. He uses those circumstances to bring them closer to him or to bring them into salvation. He reduced the prodigal son to nothing after he had everything. And what happened? He ran to his father, who was a symbol of our father in heaven in that parable. The Lord has compassion on his own and he brings them to him. Now we can say what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. It says, persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And 2 Corinthians 6.10, it says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. In Christ, we can possess very little physically, but be rich in his mercy and grace. We will be persecuted, struck down, and brought low, but never forsaken and never destroyed. God will never turn his back and let any of his beloved starve. If we are being faithful and trusting in our time of need, he will provide. Having little or nothing, remember, is not to be caused, caused by idleness. If we remember, we are called to engage and do good, to be actively obedient and trusting God. Not to be a sluggard. So be careful not to use this as an excuse to sit on your hands and say the Lord will provide and wait for handouts. We're called to do good. Then we are gracious to others because of what we have been given. We do not prosper or find joy when we are cheap or hold on to what we have with a white knuckle grip. But delight in doing good. Our children will see that in us and become a blessing to others as well. When we reflect Christ in our behavior, our children will see it. When we look to Christ in hardship, our children will see it. 
When we do not neglect our children, they will become a blessing. He will be their God and the God of generations to come, as we read here in this verse. They are des- the descendants are a blessing of the righteous. They will carry the banner of faith by God's provision. Like when we see the God of I- a- Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jason- Jacob, and it goes from generation to generation. That is the hope of every God-fearing parent. And we see a retelling of verse three in this next verse. It says, depart from evil and do good in verse 27. Depart from evil and do good. And then in verse three, it says, trust in the Lord and do good. It it is much easier to leave evil alone when we are actively trusting in the Lord and doing good. Amen? If you can, turn with me to Titus chapter three. Titus chapter three. Starting in verse 11. Titus 3.11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify himself for a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We do not trust in the way of our world and the promises that they make. We do not trust in doing evil for our fulfillment. We are obedient only to Christ and his word. We reject the way of the world and the broad road. We follow the narrow way by the Lord establishing our steps and diligently doing good. He blesses that conviction. We are a people of his own possession. So we reflect him in all we do, amen? We are to be zealous in doing good. The one who neglects to do good will soon be doing evil. I have Proverbs 2 on the screen, verses 6 through 8. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. He blesses the righteous who follow him by them inheriting the land and therefore inheriting salvation. He tells us, depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. He gives us the ability to do good and prove the faith that is in us, so we will abide forever. He not only brings us from death to life, but then he gives us a direction to live our lives. He points out the way to us, then makes our footing sure on that way. Then he gives us the faith and the ability and the tools to live a life that, that honors and glorifies him. And we, re, and we remain on that narrow way, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, who is the author and perfecter of that faith, of our faith. And when we finish our pilgrimage on, here on this earth, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Then we will abide forever in his presence and glorify his holy name. That is why we sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones, as we keep on reading. Again, this is a judgment of the righteous and innocence. It is the same as we saw in verse 6, is that he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. 
The Lord loves justifying his own people. He loves it. He does not forsake them. This, again, is the result of Christ's work on the cross. Therefore, the Lord can still be just to vindicate his own, yet still just to judge the wicked. This is a righteous judgment of the upright and the wicked. It is a double-edged sword. If you are in him, the Lord will see his son in your place. A perfect life in place of your own sinful one. This is the fruit of obeying the word of God. Our honor rests in the Lord and his work. But if you are of the world, you will also be judged righteously. Except it will be your own works that you will be standing on. And if we read scripture, God demands perfection. That is his standard. No one can live a perfect life except one man, that is Christ. Christ fulfilled God's standard and sacrificed himself for all that who will believe. And after his sacrifice, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, waiting to judge the wicked and the righteous. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 12, it says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool at his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Amen. Do not miss what the word is saying here. Before Christ came to earth in the Jewish culture, the priest had to continually make sacrifices for sin. The work was never complete. They could never sit down in their duty. But Christ's sacrifice, that one was final. By him sitting down at the right hand of God, it signified two things. That Christ's sacrifice was offered once for all time. And that the work was finished. It is, it is finished, he cried out on the cross. It was not like the sacrifices of the priesthood. What they were doing pointed to Christ's sacrifice. His sacrifice was sufficient for all time, and now he is waiting for his time where he will have final victory over his enemies. That is why in the next part of verse 28, we read, they are preserved forever. We are preserved because of Christ's work. On the screen, I have John chapter 10, starting in verse 28. It says, I gave eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you are in Christ and a part of the fold of God, you do not perish when you die. Your body will, will perish, but your soul goes to be with the Lord. Therein lies our hope and our reward. We will abide forever with him. We are preserved by his grace. Not to be forsaken. That is what our Lord promises. It seems too good to be true. It does. Because all we know and experience here on this earth is sin and struggle. But we trust in what the word of God tells us and press on towards the prize which waits for us. And as our pastor said, what waits for us? Glory. <laughs> Remember these words. We sing this song all the time. It's a sovereign grace song. It says, when we see your face. It says, all the waiting will be over. Every sorrow will be healed. 
All the dreams it seemed could never be will all be made real. And you gather us together in your arms of endless grace as your bride forever when we see your face. We will see, we will know, like we've never known before. We'll be found, we'll be home. We'll be yours forevermore. It's beautiful. Our faith will be made sight, and it will be more incredible than you can ever imagine. That is why the things of this world mean nothing and are an empty promise. Look at what we have in Christ and what is waiting for us in heaven. This is not our home. It cannot be. But we long to be with our Lord and experience his full glory. Then we read again in the next words, it's another pairing of the wicked being cut off and the righteous inheriting the land. But this one, it takes it a step further. It says not only the wicked will be cut off, but their descendants will be cut off as well. This is the opposite of what we just learned in verse 26, where we see the descendants of the righteous are a blessing from generation to generation and just carries on. Another direct contrast to help, us, help the believer remember to not fret about the, what the wicked are doing or what's going on, but to dwell in what promises the Lord has told us. The wicked will be cut off and no more. You will look for them and they will not be there as we read in verse 10. But the righteous will be preserved forever and dwell in the land forever. We will be with him in paradise and we will live forever to enjoy it. Incredible. Now we focus in verse 30 on how the righteous speak. In verse 30, it says, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The wisdom of the righteous is grounded in the fear of the Lord, as we read in Proverbs 1.7. Therefore, since they live in a right relationship to God, they are able to speak of wisdom from experience. To have knowledge about something is one thing, but wisdom is something completely different. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. Knowledge is in your head, but wisdom is here in the heart. And if you delight in knowing that the law of God is in your heart, you will find true wisdom. A person's tongue is a good indication of their heart, isn't it? The tongue will reveal their character eventually. Someone who is good speaks of things that are edifying, honorable, and that flow out from what has been revealed to them. Spurgeon said, righteousness is wisdom in action. Righteousness is wisdom in action. Behaving in an upright manner comes not only from knowing what the word says, but knowing how to apply it. It is meditating and dwelling on truths revealed in scripture, then living it out in our daily lives. If you desire wisdom, seek it out. Seek it out. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is portrayed crying out to anyone who will listen. And we read in 8.17, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. So do you think the great people of faith woke up one day and just automatically had wisdom? If, if your name's not Solomon, the answer's no, right? No, they sought it out. They diligently applied themselves to the scripture and things of the Lord. They Then understanding was, was given to them by the Spirit. The fruit of, of wisdom is better than, than gold and any precious silver. And then we read in verse 28 that the Lord loves justice. 
And now in verse 30, the tongue of the righteous speaks justice. We love what the Lord loves, naturally, as, as believers in Christ. The believer loves speaking of the judgment of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. They are advocates of justice. The Lord is anxiously awaiting to bring justice to his righteous saints and declare them innocent and be with them for eternity. And we anxiously, anxiously await his return to us to be vindicated and then us to be with him. The righteous speech is not flippant or foolish. What the righteous says has consequence and it has meaning especially when the scripture says that the tongue of the righteous speaks justice. In verse 31, it says, the law of God is in his heart. His, step does not, his steps do not slip. Remember from a few weeks ago about when we talked about the heart. The heart is the seat of one's inner nature. It's, it's where the thoughts, your will, your emotions come from. They all stem from the heart. And the law of God must be written on our hearts in order to live a life that pleases him. It must be there. It's what changes our heart from stone to flesh. And therefore, your whole life is now determined by the law of God and not the stubbornness of your heart. And our steps do not slip because we are guided by that law that's in our heart. We stand on solid ground of scripture and walk in the, right, in, in the walk of the righteous is fixed on the inward rule of scripture in ourselves. And then Spurgeon has this nice short quote on this idea of the law of God in our hearts. It's, it's the best thing in the best place producing the best results. So it's the law of God is the best thing. It's in the best place in our hearts and it's produce, producing the best results. It's a sure footing in Christ. When God's law is at the center of who you are, out of that will come a righteous life with wise and just words and wise and just deeds flowing from who you are in Christ. If we determine our footsteps by God's known will, it will save us from much fretting and much stumbling. When we love his holy word, our motives and our thoughts and our desires are sanctified. Your complete inner nature is transformed and it becomes obedient to his word. Your way becomes genuine and becomes trustworthy. I have Psalm chapter one on the screen. Verse, starting in verse two, it says, but, de, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates on it day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Who or what you spend your time with greatly influences who you are. If we spend our, our time in the world or doing things of the world, that is what is going to influence your thoughts and your motives. But if we are meditating, as the scripture says, on God's word day and night, we find direction in our lives. We are not lost. This comes from having delight in it, having delight in God's word and a desire to read it, and it is not a chore. Next we read in verse 32, it says, the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. The wicked are watching to see when we slip. 
to see when we fall or stumble so that they can destroy the righteous. Seeking to kill them, we saw last week in verse 14, it says, the wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. They prey on the afflicted and needy. But what does the Lord do? He breaks the arms of the wicked and their sword enters their own heart. We, what we see here in this verse is no different. The Lord will not leave the righteous in, the, in their hands or let them be condemned by the, by the wicked. We are protected and preserved by the very hand of God. And it should not concern the believer to be judged by the world. We are not here to please them. We are not here for the world. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, it says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. But the one who examines me is the Lord. The world will try to condemn the righteous, but it is of little consequence. Their judgment means nothing compared to the judgment of God. It is him we honor and glorify with our lives, not the world. Then again, we are told to wait for the Lord and keep his way in verse 34. So again, this is an anxious awaiting, if we remember um, from verse 7. This is an anxious awaiting for the Lord to return. It's a looking ahead to glory, to a new heaven and a new earth. There is strength in waiting. There is strength in it. We, can't, we, we stand firm in truth, grounded in the word of God. Our roots run deep in our faith and cannot be uprooted. The believer will not be shaken by circumstance or emotions. Last week we spoke on the, the idea of being meek. Power under control. That is what this is. To be strong in our trust of God and his promise to redeem us and raise us up with him. That strength comes from him. Like an unmovable tree in a storm, while the world around us is in chaos, it stands firm, unfazed by what's going on around us. It's easy to say that little word, wait, but it's hard to do. But by faith, we are called to do it, aren't we? then we are to carry on and, and stay on the narrow path to righteousness. Remember, we talked about in week one, doing good is the path that leads us to holiness. And holiness is the bridge that leads us to happiness. Do not grow weary in, in staying on the straight and narrow path by doing good. Keep his way, keep it. And if we continue to, to wait for the Lord and keep his way, what does he say? He said, he will exalt you to inherit the land. The Lord will exalt you. This, is, this word is to raise up, to be promoted, or to, to rise in rank. Not only will the Lord reach out and protect the saints when they are overwhelmed by the burden of life, but he will raise you up and promote you to glory when you die. So do not lose heart when the burden is great. It's temporary, but glory is forever. And again, the wicked will be cut off, and we will see it. What a terrible sight that will be. We will see the wicked being judged by a holy God. What a cure for fretting, though. Our problems seem insignificant in light of that text, doesn't it? Imagine seeing most of the people in the world, because we, we read it, it's a broad road. Many go on that road. Imagine seeing most of the people in the world being completely wiped out by our Lord. It's an awful end. 
So we look to him in thankfulness instead of fretting because we know that fate doesn't wait for those who are in him, the righteous. Now we move on to the last section of our, of our text um, in verses 35 through 40. <clears throat> it says, I have seen a wicked, a wicked violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and behold the upright for the man of peace will have posterity, but transgressors will altogether be destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. We see the wicked prosper, creating for themselves what seems to be a very fine life. But what they are doing is spreading roots into a dying world. And what happens? They pass away. We look for them, and they're no more. You can even earnestly seek for, for them, but we will not find them. Their fame and fortune are gone, and they are forgotten. In the beginning of this psalm, we saw that the wicked are compared to very small and delicate plants. Do you remember? And what and they withered and faded away. Here we see them depicted as a very large tree with apparent deep roots. But the result is the same as verse two. This should help us realize that it does not matter how grand or renowned the wicked are. Their end does not change. They will be cut off and they will be no more. In verse 37, we are told to take note of the blameless man. Look to the upright. Good men are men of distinction. They are honorable, which is a work of grace. We have many examples of this throughout Scripture. We, wrote, we read in, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And we, we read of men like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 59, when he was being stoned, for proclaiming Christ. So they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And finally, Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter four. It says, for I am ready, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who believed in his appearing. Those men lived their lives for the Lord, blameless in the sight of God because of the work and blood of Christ blessed and preserved until the end. <clears throat> and beloved, we at Pacific Hope have a great example of this, don't we? It's our dear brother, John Leader. We can say that he fought the good fight. He finished his race. He kept the faith and he finished strong, didn't he? 
and we get to experience the fruit of the ministry in a very real way. And let me tell you, when I see him in heaven, he's, he's going to hit me for giving him as an example, too. <laughs> but, because he, he wouldn't want this to be about that. But it is fitting. We have a brother that we can look to as an example to carry on the faith. And the second part of verse 37, I think it's better understood in the ESV where it says, for there is a future for the man of peace. Or in the King James, it says, for the end of that man is peace. This peace is in heaven. Not only, not only place, uh, the only place where there will be true peace is in heaven. No pain or suffering or struggle with sin, but true peace. And the last example of the wicked being cut off here is in verse 38. The transgressor and the wicked will not have peace. They will be all together. Meaning, this word all together, they will be gathered up. They'll be all grouped together. And not one will be left out. So they will all be gathered, destroyed, and cut off at once. There is finality to this. Their end is sure, and not one of them will escape it. But, in verse 39, but. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. This is capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the name of God. He is the author of all of this. He is the author of the destruction. He is also the author of the salvation. This is the heart of the gospel. It's free grace. Salvation is deliverance, deliverance of every kind. Victory in death and freedom from sin. He is our source of strength in times of trouble. Strength, is, strength here in this verse, it means refuge. It's a structure. He is the stronghold or fortress that is ours. In times of trouble, we can simply go to our Lord and find peace in him. In verse 40, he helps us and delivers us from all things. He is our refuge, and we, we find constant grace and mercy in, in our refuge. We seek him out and find safety in who he is. Listen to this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. And in the last verse it says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And let me read from the Valley of Vision. We've been focusing on, for the last month, maintaining a proper perspective. And for the believer, and it's fitting today, thinking of our brother. <clears throat> this one is called Earth and Heaven. It says, O oh Lord, I live here as a fish in a vessel of water, only enough to keep me alive. But in heaven I shall swim in the ocean. Here I have little air in me to keep me breathing. But there I shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here I have a beam of sun to lighten my darkness, a warm ray to keep me from freezing. Yonder I shall have light and warmth forever. My natural desires are corrupt and misguided, and it is thy mercy to destroy them. My spiritual longings are of thy planting, and thou will water and increase them. Quicken my hunger 
and thirst after the realm above. Here I can have the world, there I shall have thee in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer. There is assurance without suspicion, asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts more burden than benefit. There is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconsistency, rest without weariness. Give me to know that heaven is all love, where the eye affects the heart, and the continual viewing of thy beauty keeps the soul in continual transports of delight. Give me to know that heaven is all peace, where error, pride, rebellion, passion raise no head. Give me to know that heaven is all joy. The end of believing, fasting, praying, mourning, humbling, watching, fearing, repining. Lead me to it soon. Amen. So for the past four weeks, as I close, we've been studying what will happen to the wicked and what will happen to the righteous. And I have failed if you don't know what awaits you. If you don't have Christ, what the Bible says is that you are an enemy of his and he is at war with your soul. Without Christ pulling you out of the pit and giving you new life in him, you have no hope in of yourself. You are hopeless and there's nothing that you can do. No deed, no work can change that truth. If you have been told that Jesus is a friend of yours or that Jesus is your buddy and he wants you to have some kind of experience or come to Christ and all your problems will go away, you have been told a lie. And that is not the gospel of what this holy word says. The gospel is offensive. They murdered Christ for preaching it. And they murdered his disciples for preaching Christ crucified. The only work, only the work of Christ on the cross will change where you stand in judgment. That is it. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to change your heart and to give you life in, in him. The Bible tells you to repent and believe. Fear God because he is holy. If you don't believe and you die in your sin, judgment does await you. While you are here on earth, this is the closest to heaven that you will ever get. This is your time to repent. If you believe in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, and that he raised from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and he rules and reigns with God now, then this is the closest to hell you will get. We struggle with sin and weakness here, but we are promised to be with our Lord in glory. That is our hope, and that is where we find rest. So I tell you once again, repent and believe if you are not in Christ. And let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are thank you for the truths in scripture that we find. We point... We're grateful that it points back to you, that we look to you in all things, that we give you glory in the hard times and the good times. Lord, that we continually walk in the way and that your spirit leads us in that way. Thank you for making our footing sure. Thank you for this church and the encouragement that we give one another on a daily basis. Lord, help us glorify you in all we do and how we think, how we speak, and how we worship. We lift this time up to you and we thank you in your name, amen.